My name is Eduardo Zanata. I'm Vice President of Operations at the Vita and an MBA graduate of the Harvard Business School. The Latter-day Saint MBA Society was founded by a group of MBA students and alumni who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, with the goal of bringing together a community committed to navigating the business world with our faith at the center of our lives. In this podcast, you'll hear interviews with Latter-day Saint thought leaders that we hope will inspire you both in your professional and spiritual life. For more information about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society, visit latterdaysaintmba.com. And now I'll pass it over to Kurt Frankham, who will host this week's interview. All right, Kevin Rollins, welcome to the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. How are you? I'm doing just great. Thank you so much for having me. This is a treat. Yeah, this is fun. We've been uh, going back and forth trying to find a time to connect and, and record, and, and we finally, the, the the stars have aligned. We're here. So That's great. Well, thanks, Kurt. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, and, and where are you located currently? I uh, live in Boston, Massachusetts, um, with my uh, family, and I still have a couple of kids here, but most of my kids are married or older and moved away or married, so. Yeah. Here in Boston, we love Boston. Boston is where I kind of started my business career. It's been great to get a chance to be here again. Nice. Well, and we're going to explore some of that today. And I think most people, at least for, my, for myself, when they, they hear your name, they automatically think of your time as the CEO of, of Dell Computer. Yeah. Um, what else? I mean, I mean we'll, we'll get into a lot of the details, but I mean, is there, what, what, do you, what else do you feel like you're known for as far as in your professional life? <laughs> uh, well, in different circles, I'm known for different things. But, uh, but uh, I think Dell is clearly the, the most pronounced uh, um, kind of assignment that I've had. And so most of my friends and people from Utah and other around the country know me there. Uh, we got quite a bit of notoriety at the time because Dell was such a, a high-flying performer that most people uh, wanted to know all about that almost more than what about me. So, uh, and that was fine with me. That was just fine yeah. with me. Dell was a wonderful <laughs> experience, uh, in, incredible experience. Like I haven't really seen very many companies, uh, repeat before since then. So it's, uh, I'm very lucky to be involved with it. Yeah. And so at the beginning of your life, like growing up was, I mean, what did you think you, or what did you want to be when you grew up? <laughs> well, most people don't know, but I'm actually a musician. I played violin and other instruments since I was oh, really? classical violin. Oh. And so, um, I'm actually really a musician at heart. And my mother uh, is the one to, to blame for that. Uh, but my brother <laughs> and I both played violin forever and still do. And so it's a big part of my life. Uh, but I'd have to say, so what do you wish you could do? I, I wish I could have built houses. Of all really? These things to do. Yeah. I, the, the, the progress you see in the building of a house every day, you know what you did, you know what progress you've seen. When sometimes in corporate life, you go for several weeks and you don't know if you're doing any good at all. Uh, you hope you are uh, and you try to, but you don't know. So that's what I actually would have probably liked to do. I'd have probably been terrible at it. I'd have made no money. Um, <laughs> but when we build houses, and we built several of them, as most people have, I that was the most satisfying, funnest thing we Debbie and I got to do is build hmm. those new houses. So there you go. I would uh, yeah. So as a kid, as a kid, were you doing a lot with your hands? Obviously playing instruments, but were you a hands-on type of person as as a as a child? I was essentially with me, with music, so to speak, with the hands playing the music. But um, uh, the hands-on thing came when we would when we would build uh, homes and get a chance to help design them, and then mm -hmm. to help pick out what we would do with them. And um, that was fairly hands-on, and you got to see a lot of things change. And uh, while you were in the process of building, um, 
So that was probably where I got the most was just from yeah. the, and I'm a civil engineer. It was one of my undergraduate degrees. And so um, that is construction and that's uh, a lot to do with building things. Uh, and so I kind of came by it with that. That uh, My dad was an engineer as well. So it kind of came by it from by genealogy. Yeah, that was my next question. What, what did your parents do growing up? Your, was your dad just spent a whole career in, in engineering? Yeah, he was a he was a um, he got his PhD in civil engineering and then taught at BYU for his whole career. Oh wow! Uh, and then uh, my, I have a brother who's a civil engineer as well, and he has kind of took over, taken over from my father there at BYU, and he's a professor in the civil engineering department at BYU. So my my dad was an engineer, and then he, he had his own engineering consulting firm, which would do subsurface investigations for foundations and for roads and highways and temples. And churches. Uh, so he was heavily involved in the construction industry, but really as a, a researcher and then also as a uh, uh, an investigator of what's under the ground before you build something on it. Hmm. And did that have, I assume, had a lot of influence on you since you went the, in the civil engineering direction? Yeah, in fact, I was going to do that, but I, I got my MBA. But even after the MBA, I was going to join my father and his firm and uh, become a civil engineer with his company. And uh, that's that was exactly what I was going to do until the professor changed my mind and said, you really ought to go into consulting. So oh, really? that, that took me off into a little different path and ended up in Boston. Nice. So what about your faith development as a child? Pretty traditional Latter-day Saint home. And, and how, what would you add to that? Yeah, very traditional. My father was a bishop, uh, mother, wonderful Relief Society leader and uh, primary leader all throughout my life. Um, I was a devout little kid. Uh, I believed I've always believed it. Uh, every aspect of the gospel, I believe. I believe Joseph Smith. I believe that uh, the Savior came to him. I believe all those stories that some people have trouble with or some people believe in strongly. But I believed in all of them. And so whenever I prayed, uh, I got an answer. And the answer was always a positive one. So I was never without faith. Uh, and my family was, was, was very strongly faithful, uh, extended families as well. So when I went a mission, on a mission, I was thrilled to go on a mission. And I loved it. And I had a great success uh, on my mission. So uh, some people have troubles and I just, it was hard, but I just loved it. Yeah. And, and where'd you so go on your mission? I went to Canada, Alberta and Saskatchewan, had wonderful mission presidents, great friends. Uh, and then came back and I've been a bishop. I've been a stake president, uh, been in stake presidencies. I'm currently serving as a service mission leader, which is a kind of a mission president to the service, young service missionaries here in the greater Boston area with my wife, Debbie, and uh, we're loving that. It's just a great, great experience, these young people. And um, we just hope it just continues. Just yeah. do more and more of those fun things with uh, the Lord and watch his uh, hand revealed and uh, just to get a chance to participate in even in a little bit is just yeah. sweet. So as a young man, you came back from your mission from Canada, and I, I assume your your intent was to finish your degree in, in civil engineering. And, and at what point did that, and you mentioned a professor that mentioned that you should go into consulting. I mean, did that lead into the MBA degree or tell us that story? Well, I came back and talked with my family about what to do. And, and my brother at one point was going to be a civil engineer and he went off into computer science. Um, I had a younger brother who did go into uh, civil engineering and uh, ended up uh, uh, doing quite well and became a professor at BYU in civil engineering. And he's the one that kind of took over from my father's position. But I was going to do, join my father's, he had a, a small consulting firm that he was running while he was a professor. And uh, 
I was going to join him and do that with my MBA degree. But again, like I said, my, in my second year uh, at one of the really a, a pretty a, a professor that had pretty profound uh, influence on me, Bill Swinyard, uh, pulled me aside and said, you know, you have you considered consulting? And I said, no, I was going to go be <laughs> I was going to go be a, a, a consulting engineer. And he goes, we got to look at this instead. So I did, and I investigated. I interviewed with uh, Bain and Company. It was very, very hard to do. They didn't interview very many of, of BYU's uh, grads. Uh, Mitt Romney was a Bain guy at one point in time, and a number of other people that we will, you will know that were Bain people. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I did, and it worked out just great. Uh, and I found out I really did like it. And so uh, nice. joined. And, so, and then was that before your MBA degree or after? That was after. It was, I mean, okay. he, was, he was one of my professors while I was getting my my MBA, gotcha. and, uh, and so uh, you know, I enjoyed, enjoyed his class immensely. And so I just headed off in that direction. Afterward, did all that interviewing at the end of the second year with various engineering, with various consulting firms, McKinsey, BCG, Bain and Company, and others. But uh, Bain was the one I landed on. And at that time, uh, Mitt Romney was at Bain. Now, I didn't know Mitt from a hole in the head, so I didn't know <laughs> anything about Mitt. But um, but there was three or four uh, senior guys there who were from Bain. So that had a bit of an influence on me, too, as I knew there were people that I would know and had the same value systems that I had. And uh, uh, so it ended up being a real uh, easy decision for me to make. Yeah. Now, was there a decision point as far as when you decided to get your MBA? And, and I assume you got your MBA at uh, Brigham Young University, right? Yes, which is which was rare. And and, and I put, I got a great degree, so I can't criticize it. But the uh, the notoriety might have been a little greater if I'd have gone to Harvard. So mm-hmm. in, a, in the grand scheme of things, I, I probably should have gone to Harvard, wished I would have. But I can't fault BYU for that. BYU gave me a great education, and I've done just fine with it. But yes. I had a little, little different perspective on things if I'd have been a Harvard MBA instead of a BOU MBA. And it was, so it was just a, one application to, to Brigham Young University and try any other schools. Yeah, yeah. I just, I just, I never thought about it because originally uh-huh. I was going to get my MBA and join my father in Provo, Utah. So yeah. I had no interest and no need to to go to the, either one of the coasts or other uh, schools. I could get a degree at BOU, which I ended up doing, and it was a wonderful degree. Um, yeah. And so that, that, that's how I ended up. And then uh, why, why did you make the decision to go the MBA route if you were going to do civil engineering? Good, it's a good point. Um, I was following my brother a little bit. He'd been an MBA at BRU and had done quite okay. well. And um, I liked the MBA studies. As I looked at them and took classes in marketing and finance, I really liked it. And I kind of gravitated to it. And I thought I was pretty good at it. I think that's why this professor told me I ought to consider it. But um, I looked at it and participated in it, and I thought I was doing quite well. And so I said, well, this, maybe I could just run my dad's businesses with my MBA and not necessarily have to be an engineer, although I did have to be. But um, I thought <laughs> I could get around that, but I couldn't. Uh, and so I um, ended up uh, doing, getting both of them, getting an engineering degree. If I needed to, I could go back and work with my father if I didn't get a decent job. But if I got a got an MBA type job, which is all the consulting firms, that's who they were hiring, uh, were were MBAs, and they would hire yeah. just from the very top of the class, which made it really anxiety driven and hard to hope that you'd get a job. But I luckily did. Yeah. Now, with the life of, of business experience at this point in your life, uh, what what advice would you give to maybe a student who's going into their their first semester of MBA school? Any any advice coming to mind as far as how they should uh, use that experience? 
Well, to, to your point, I, I've had a lot of young men and women who come to me uh, really when they're finishing their undergrad and they're deciding what they want to do. And they're being told, you don't need to go get an MBA or a law degree. Just go ahead out, out of school. If you're undergrad, you can do just fine. And my advice always to them was, that's a bunch of bunkum. Get all <laughs> of the education you can get when you can get it uh, and, and without, without reservation. And so I'd say, if you can go get a, if you've got a great job, but you can go get your MBA, go get it. And if you can get a PhD, go get that. But get all your education because there's going to come a time where you can't get it. You can't go. You'll have uh, commitments and, and responsibilities. You can't leave to go to school. So get it all right when you can. So I told them all to go to school as long as they could go uh, before they then left and started their career. Yeah. So you leave, uh, you get your MBA at BYU, uh, you're leaving, you get hired by Bain and company. And wh- how would you describe those, just those first professional years? Uh, I'm, I'm sure they they were quite busy. They were. And, and I, I, I was uh, frankly a little out of my element, uh, because I had not planned on being a business guy per se. And, uh-huh. and the, the intensity as I've learned to come to know at uh, Harvard or Stanford or some of those more well, well known, although I would, I don't want to under undermine BYU at all, but, uh, those, those, they had a little bit, a little leg up on us BYU grads uh, with the reputation and the people who recruit there. And, and, and so there's a little, little bit of, uh, you had to work really hard. So when I first got there, I frankly didn't know what to do. Uh, and so I had to ask a lot of people, well, now, what do you, I've got this assignment, what am I supposed to do? And, uh, and I, I got some fabulous colleagues who were just wonderful. And I got probably the, my best second MBA education at Bain and Company. Uh, from my colleagues who were there, who taught me and helped me, and and I learned so much from that. It was a it was a great great learning experience, and I reflect now on that experience at Bain with great love and reverence because it was uh, probably one of the best, if not the best, business experiences in my life. Yeah, is, is there any specific principle that comes to mind that you really took away from that that Bain experience that uh, you saw yourself revisiting over and over again throughout your professional life yeah there was one we we used to have this little saying was is um execute and then add value which fundamentally says do the job you're asked to do and then if you can figure out some other things to do go ahead and do those too but don't go off and freelance do the assignment and nail the assignment Hmm. and so it's execute on that assignment and then go add value i mean do other little things you'd do so there are a number of little sayings like that at bain and company that were um really prominent in terms of you know just helping you understand and have your mind and mindset and because a lot of real smart people there and they're all doing really excellent things i've always learned you you learn a lot more when you work with smart people than you do when you work with dumb people so uh, (laughs) working with really smart people is a great education and don't ever discount it by so i'm going to go be the smartest guy in a small firm and see how that goes it probably won't be as good because you won't learn as much as you'll learn when you, as you are with working with the very intelligent people who are very motivated and very capable um, and uh, really fun to work with. Yeah. Any other principle that comes to mind during those, those Bain and company years? Oh, well, man, first off, the, the collegiality of working. I never experienced one moment where I felt someone was trying to undercut me. Oh, really? Well, to wow. take my job or to make me look bad or n- not for a second. Everybody there was, and as far as I remember, were supportive. Uh, they were thoughtful. They were uh, smart. And they had enough confidence in their own capability. They didn't try to have to f- think they had to take it from somebody else. And so I learned in that environment that 
working with really high quality people, no matter the intensity, no matter the difficulty, was the best path, the best path. And then working with those very smart people made me a better uh, employee and, and helped me get a better education uh, after my education uh, when I worked with my friends at Bain. And I still yeah. stay in touch with them all today. And they're still some of my, my most cherished friends. I bet. I bet. So did it take too long uh, sort of at Bain and Company to realize that this is what you enjoyed doing and you saw that this is where your career was, was headed long term? Well, it did. Yeah. And what, what happens at, at Bain or a lot of the consulting firms in general is you go out and you're working with this for the CEO, your case team is. And so uh -huh. not, the, not me when I was young, but, but you start to get more experience. And so you start work with more and more senior executives. You rarely start at the very bottom of the, of the company when they've hired a top, top tier ex, uh, consulting firm to come in. And so what you would learn is uh, business principles of running companies by watching CEO after CEO who you consult with, see how they did things, good and bad, and gain a great uh, learning from from watching how they how they ran things and from then taking on those assignments that you would never get a chance to do that as a young executive. Uh, it, it take you years and years before you get into the senior ranks before you'd ever be able to do one of the, uh, work on some of those problems. And so you, you got a very early uh, maturing process. And, yeah. um, and so I learned how to do things at the highest level of companies that I then could take on to other assignments and could internalize so that I knew how to run a company, frankly, long before I was probably old enough to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And I know, you know, the consulting path is, is, you know, more typical maybe for MBA grads, but I mean, is that, would you recommend that for a new MBA to really consider that path or what, what advice would you give to that MBA who's fresh out of uh, MBA school? Well, I would, although I think it's changed. I, I don't. I don't think the pathway is quite the same uh, mm. of going from you know your your undergrad to an MBA to most of the, the top MBAs would either go to investment banking in those days or now private equity or they would go to consulting. Uh, that's where the money was paid, and that's where the top top folks usually got offers. Um, and so doing that was the path before. I don't know if it's that's quite the same anymore. I don't know if there's this, a, a longer period of time where those young MBAs can go into a job where they really learn on the job. Uh, if, it's, if it's a private mm. equity thing where they're trying to do analysis and then make decisions, I think that learning those MBA skills is still important. I think it is. But I worked with, with a lot of private equity firms as an advisor after I left, uh, left uh, Dell. And um, there are a lot of them that had learned other things. Uh, and, and but they didn't learn the things that I wanted to learn, and that was uh, how do you run a great company? How do you make a company a great company? Most of those guys were interested in how do I flip this company and make a bunch of money and move on to the next one. So there was no no concern for the quality of the um, a company, the strategy. Well, it was a concern, but they didn't they didn't focus on that. And if they could buy it and sell it in a week, they would do it. Yeah, because that they were there to make money, not to build great institutions. And I learned in my experience with Bain and um, watching other people, building great companies is fun and it's hmm. exciting and it's rewarding. Yeah, yeah. Anything else about those uh, Bain and Company years that would be worth mentioning before we we move on? No, nope, just 
work with smart people. If you can get the smarter, the better. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, for sure. That was all I would tell young people and get all the education. Those yeah. two I'd probably leave, leave with you. And how, well, how long were you with Bain? About 10 years. Okay. And then uh, what, uh, what instigated the change or onto the next opportunity? Well, I was the managing kind of partner of the relationship with Dell, which was a huge relationship for Bain at the time. And, and so I'd risen right up with the way that the, uh, the engagement had grown. Um, uh, and so I, you know, I, I got all those, those uh, learnings, got the things together. And then uh, I started to get a job offers uh, from within Dell, uh, from all, all the way from you know, senior executives to then to Michael. And I became very close friends with Michael Dell. And he kept offering me positions to join the company and come with them. Um, now I was not a technology guy per se. I was a civil engineer, but I was not an electrical engineer and I did not mm-hmm. know a computer science guy. Um, well, neither was Michael, frankly, cause he didn't ever finish college. But, um, but I learned how to run a company when I was at Bain. And so Michael kept asking me to do things. And I finally said, look, if you really don't hire me, uh, I'll take this job here. Cause I know how to do that. And that's the one I could do if you just got to have me <laughs> join. Yeah. And he said, done. And he said, how much do you, money do you need? And I told him, and he goes, done. <laughs> so I, called <laughs> wow. my, I called my job and I called my, my pay uh, right out of the blocks there in that first assignment. Uh, and that was pretty fun. Yeah, that's cool. And then uh, how, how many years, I mean, what, what was the general, just give us an overview of like the general path you went through uh, before finally becoming the CEO of Dell. Well, it was really fast. So, and it, so it's not normal. So if I tell people the story, they go, oh, that'd be great. I'll do that. No, 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 no. This was rare, <laughs> rarefied air. Okay. Uh, so I started working right away with Michael Dell. Uh, I was the president, became the president of the company essentially overnight. And he was the CEO and chairman. Uh, and, but we ran the, we ran the company together and we hired one other uh, a seasoned uh, executive, Mort Topfer from Motorola. So the three of us ran in the office of the chairman and ran the company as the threesome. And it worked great because we all got along. We all were in unified uh, form when we talk about and discuss things that need to be done. Uh, I was more of the executor because I was the young guy on the block. But um, 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 the three of us ran the company. And so I learned how to do that in short order. So mm-hmm. literally within... Uh, a year or two, I was put in charge of more and more and more of the company, um, literally as well as kind of figuratively. And so um, when you look at, well, how long did it take? Well, to, to be the CEO, I was, it took about 10 years. But to join in the office of the CEO, it took about two. Oh, okay. And so within two years, I was doing everything as well as the, my other two colleagues, Michael and uh, more. We just say, who's going to go take care of that one? Okay, well, you do that one. Okay, I'll do this one. And we would just assign each other and go execute on it. Yeah. And was, was your relationship with Michael Dell, did you see it more as like he, he was a mentor to you? Or, or how, how would you describe that, that relationship over the years? Well, I think at the time I joined, I was about um, uh, 40 or early 40s, and Michael was uh, – 30, early 30. So, so, but he was still a mentor to a great extent because he taught me a lot of things about his company and what he knew and what he'd learned, and it was, which was immense, immense because the company became the number one PC company in the world in short order. Um, so I, he was a mentor from that standpoint, taught me things that he was doing, but it was never really 
a boss. We, we were colleagues uh, in terms of how it worked. And so I'd learned from him, learned from Mort Toffer as well. And, um, but it was short order, uh, real, really quick rise. I mean, I went from hire to uh, president of the company to co-CEOs, and that all happened in about five or six years. Wow. Wow. So if there's maybe one principle that when you think of that relationship or what Michael Dell taught you, um, what, what would that principle be? Well, there's, there's a bunch of them, but one of the ones I recall a lot was when you make a mistake, admit it and move on and, Mm -hmm. and don't try to hide it or try to cover it up so that you won't be embarrassed that somebody finds out or, uh, it's far, far better. And was in our industry. If you got a mistake, expose it, fix it, and hurry and move on so that it doesn't fester and create problems for you or for the company. Those people mm-hmm. who tried to hide their mistake or defend their mistake forever and ever and ever basically didn't get the thing fixed, and therefore the company was not able to progress. And so we taught everybody not, there's no problem making a mistake. There is a problem if you don't admit it and get it fixed and move on. Yeah. Any, any other principles? You said there's a few. I don't know if there's one or two more that come to mind. Well, we were very fast. So uh, in those days, and the technology is still pretty fast, I think, but it's a little different now because uh, companies were just kind of forming. The companies now that we see as big technology powerhouses were not. They were smaller companies at when mm-hmm. I was there. Um, and so the, the, the other piece we do is you, you got to, there's the quick and the dead is what we would say. And so when we figured something out or knew something, we said, you got to implement that right away because you're, if you don't, the other companies will get a leg up on you and they'll beat you. So we'd talk about things and it was amazing. I just remember when I first joined, I would just been a consultant. So they, they asked me to, to go and help uh, uh, their retail business and buying computers at retail. And so I went and there was a young guy uh, managing that company who was, I'll just say he was management challenged. And and so when we went in there, uh, (laughs) he wasn't making any money. And so I, I said, look, you're not making any money unless we can figure out how to turn this thing around so you're making a profit, it's going to be gone. And he looked at me and said, what is your big deal about profit? <laughs> and I said, we got the wrong guy here. <laughs> and so, uh, so we basically uh, shut his business down and had to let him go because we said, that's not going to work. And maybe we'll figure out how to make it go later. But right now it is a it is a boat anchor on our company and we don't have the team to, to build it right now. So that's, yeah. that's what happened there with him. It's a little story. <laughs> wow. Wow. So just sort of shifting back to the, the spiritual experience during that time is, I mean, as a, maybe as a young professional raising a family, like what, what advice would you give to other young professionals who, you know, have a deep conviction in the gospel and want to make sure that's all, you know, that's part of it. And they're, they're progressing spiritually during that time. Well, a couple of things about that. First off is I never had a, a gotta live in Utah approach. <laughs> so, and you know, there, there's a, and the, it's well known in the business industry. A lot of the, the guys that come out of BYU and come out of uh, Utah go off and they want to come back. So they, they, they don't stay very long. Uh, uh-huh. And I never had that problem because when I left uh, Utah and went to, to Bain back in Boston, uh, I wanted to go there. I wanted to try something I had never done before and that I didn't know how to do. And, and so it was a thrilling, exciting experience to move out of something I knew and live in Boston and then go all over the world with consulting. And I really never went back to Utah to do anything other than to speak at BYU and to, to recruit occasionally. But the I never went back for any other business reason. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it was fun. So I love that. 
So I, I just would like to shake the Utah guy. Say you're really smart, you're really capable, but this crap about you and your wife have got to get back to Utah is going to kill you. <laughs> So give that up. <laughs> give it up and, and join uh, uh, the, the, the great LDS force of business leaders out in the world and do great things. So that was one that really bug, bugged me that I would tell them. But, you know, you can't do that. if a, some, some people just don't want to leave Utah. They're either nervous <laughs> or they love it or they, they're convinced they love it. And I felt just the opposite. Yeah. I, I guess I got to call my realtor later today, but well, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> and uh, now is your wife from Utah as well? She's from Idaho. So oh, okay. Utah. Yeah, we're essentially from the mountain. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, was that, uh, was she always game with, with that approach of realizing that a lot of your life will be out of Utah? She was, although it scared the death. She's scared to death because you hadn't lived outside of Utah and we traveled around. I wouldn't consider us world travelers. So we went back to Boston. It was a, open your eyes experience for a first time. Mm -hmm. We met a lot of people though, that we liked in the church and outside the church. And so we fit right in and still do. That's why we live here today because we still fit in and love the new England experience. Yeah. Um, and so we've, we've had nothing but uh, success and joy raising our family here and being in the church here and raising, building the church here as well as our careers. So, um, yeah, it's been, it's been a treat. Nice. And as far as like anything you remember, stories come to mind is just, you know, serving in callings or being busy with the church during those times. Anything come to mind? Well, yeah. The other thing, the other thing a lot of people worry about is, oh, I'm going to go back and work in for this East Coast business. They're going to kill me. They're going to work me day and night and I will never see my family. Um, <laughs> and so I just, you know, oh, how are we going to fix this? Uh, first off, if you're going to be a success in the world, and you want to do great things, get prepared to work hard. And if you don't want to work very hard, you're in the wrong business. Go over and uh, teach sociology or do something else. But don't, don't, <laughs> don't get into the, the, uh, the you know, fight associated with being competing in the world. Yeah. Don't, don't even get into that if you don't want to compete. What does that mean? That means you're going to have to work really hard. It means you're going to have to work really long. In fact, I would give a little talk to new, new MBAs and others come in. They'd say, give us your advice on how you establish work-life balance. And I'd say, well, first thing I'm going to tell you is get prepared to work really hard. Harder than you've ever worked before. I said, because if you're not prepared to work really hard, you're not going to stand out and you're not going to be successful here. Because the rest of these guys are very smart, well-educated, and they're going to work themselves to death. And so you better be prepared to do that. And you better talk with your wife about that and figure out how you do it. Because it's like Ecclesiastes. There's a time and season for everything. Mm -hmm. And when you just got your degree and you're establishing your career, get ready to work hard. Now, does that mean you can't accept church calling? No, no. I was a bishop when I was doing all of this. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you could do wonder, you know, very hard things and maintain your church calling if you want to try to do it. And the Lord will help you do it. Just like Nephi, when he built his boat, and Lord said, I can do really hard things here and know the Lord will, you know, give no commandment unto me that I won't be able to do it. Yeah. And so it's the same thing. Yeah. I felt, I felt, I can do this. I can work yeah. hard. I can be successful here. I can be successful at church. Why? Because the Lord wants me to be. He wants me to be good at whatever I'm doing. So anyway. Yeah. Some people yeah, say, helpful. well, I, you know, I got to go home. I can't, you know, I'm going to never see my kids. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> <Wake up. laughs> nice that's that's really helpful advice 
Yeah. Any, uh, just in your, on, in your professional life, did your faith come up a lot or in certain dynamics or just being a Latter-day Saint? I mean, did it, or was that never really a big issue as you, you know, continued on in your professional life? I never had a, you know, Mormon uh, setback because I didn't drink or because I didn't corrals or never had that happen. I had one little experience with the the guy who ran the postal service in in China, three million employees, uh, when he wanted me to toast with him and I wouldn't drink the wine. And so finally I just had to tell somebody, tell him it's a religious thing for me. I'll drink water and toast with him. And then after that, he's fine. But I never had those, you know, tense moments. My religion got in the way and it it just never did because I never put it in the way and I never use that as an excuse for living differently. I lived the way I lived and that's the way it was. And it worked out just fine for me. And everybody that who knew me as a Latter-day Saint respected me for that, as well as I had some guys, trailblazers in the company who had already been there. Like I said, Mitt Romney, so everybody knew who he was, but there are other four or five other really prominent, strong guys and uh, they were leaders. And so no one tried to ridicule them because of, uh, their Mormon faith and the principles that we all live by. Yeah. So before we hit record, you, you uh, mentioned just how different it is today being a CEO as when back when you were a CEO. Um, maybe unpack that for us. What do, what do you mean by what, what's changed as far as those executive uh, positions and, and leading a, and building a company? Well, probably because of some you know bad players, <laughs> bad actors. Um, the I what I witness is that the CEOs are a bit ridiculed and mistrusted. Hmm. And so if they say, well, he's a CEO, well, he's just a rich fat cat, so he's not going to do anything worthwhile. He's just going to line his pockets, and we can't trust what he says. And, and so when I start hearing about that, I said, well, then if that's the that's the way they're going to look at it, I don't want to be a CEO because that was never my intent, but I'm not going to ruin my reputation just because some bozo thinks I'm trying to line my pockets and I'm trying to, to uh, defraud everybody. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately there were, you know, a lot of, you have a lot of rough and tumble situations that occur in business and I had them too, but it was never because I had to, you know, to forfeit my um, career or as a uh, elder Holland would talk about, check your values at the door. Um, mm-hmm. Never did I have to do that. Never did anyone ask me to do that. Uh, so, yeah. So, would you recommend, uh, you know, the those uh, the CEO role for others, or is there maybe a better way to establish a career today? I don't know. Well, I, w- I would, but if, if you wanted to do it, like I told you before, I didn't ever really, really, really want to do it. Now, I, I, I did it because I ne- they needed to, and I thought I'd be good at it, and I, I think I was, but I didn't have it in my mind to be a CEO from day one as a kid and then as an MBA student, I just wanted to solve problems. I wanted to mm-hmm. find big, tough, gnarly problems and work on them and solve them and then have the company implement them and be very successful. That was where I got my fun out of doing it. So are there others who, who are really uh, into being a big wig? I'm sure there are, and they want to be a big wig and they, if they want to be it, go be it. Um, but that was never my goal, and I still had to work really hard and when I became CEO, I just said, thanks, but you know, I, this is not something I've been dying to do. I told that to Michael. He knew that. Um, I decided after I left Dell that I started to kind of rethink that and maybe thought maybe I want to be a CEO now, but I got rid of the attitude quickly and then just became an advisor for some other companies and be on boards. And that was enough. Yeah. 
Yeah. So maybe talk about those those early years of being the the sole CEO. I mean, walking into that role, what challenges did you face? Was it daunting? I mean, what do you remember from that time? Well, first off, as I told you before, Michael and this other fellow, Mort Topfer, and I ran the company together. So while we had different titles, I was president, Mort was chairman, vice chairman, okay. Michael was the CEO at that time. We ran it as a threesome. So there was never a time. So, well, I'm the president. I'm going to take this. Oh, we okay. Did, we never did that. So the notion of when I was the CEO, what was it like? Well, still, Michael and I ran the company together then. Gotcha. And so we'd talk about every decision. And before we do anything, we had agreed upon it. So the notion of um, kind of becoming a CEO and facing all the challenges. Now you do because your name is on the wall along CEO. You take the, you take the criticism. Yeah. And, and, and so you're going to get whacked. And I got whacked like everybody else did for a whole, whole host of things. Um, but that just comes with the territory. And if it's, you don't like the heat, get out of the kitchen. Um, but we were still running a great company, doing great things. And so people want to criticize me. Some did. Others didn't. And uh, we went on and had, ran a very, very successful company through uh, uh, rough waters, you know, many years. And uh, just the way it was. And so I yeah. was happy. So if you want to be a CEO, I would not tell you to stay away from it. Don't hide from it. Don't run away from it. The other, the other problem is actually harder. And that is, how do you, uh, how do you um, get to the CEO slot? Because they got to ask you to be it before you can yeah. be it. Yeah. So you can't just say, I'm going to be the CEO. Uh, and so you, you basically have to try real hard and be really good. And, you know, what I, what I used to say is you have to take out the garbage a lot. Nobody yeah. else wants to take out the garbage except guys will do it. And the CEO has to do it because there's nobody else wants. He's, there's only left, left to do it. And so if you want to be um, a leader, be prepared to take out the garbage a lot. Yeah. So what was the approach as far as building a great company? You mentioned earlier, you know, you saw that, that that's where the fun was at. It was not just, you know, getting the, the profit and, and, uh, you know, moving on with the, with the shares or whatever, but how, what were the principles in that effort to build not just a good company, but really a, a great, fantastic organization? Well, it started years before when, when the, Michael had started his company and Michael was a very young guy. And, but his company was massively successful. And so in one year, it went from two, $1 billion in revenue to $2 billion in revenue. Hmm. And then the wheels started falling off the car because it just couldn't, it didn't have the, they didn't have the management team to be able to manage that growth. And so we had to come back and kind of do a little bit of repairing and triage to see what do we need to do to fix this company so that it is prepared to grow and to grow responsibly, successfully, and not just have another crash uh, in it, but it could continue to grow. And we did that built a management team. Uh, we started to put uh, definitions around the strategy that Dell was implementing instead of seat of the pants stuff. Uh, we hmm. established much better financial um, uh, management into the, into the group and to the various parts of the business that we had. So we started just to fix it so it was ready to, ready to fight and ready to, to, to get very good. Well, once we got that done, we said, okay, now what else we need to do? Well, we need talent. We, everybody needs talent. We need a ton of it because we're growing so fast. So we then established a very disciplined model for how we grew our, and, and managed our people. And, and so that was the next thing we did. Is, and so we started to put in structures and um, professional business management techniques on how to run the company and how to manage people. 
And that allowed us to then have the, you know, the muscles we needed uh, to run the company well and have the company not be on a precipice all the time. And then we started hiring uh, better people. So we put together, you know, recruiting and interviewing packages. So we learned how to do it and our executives learned how to do it. Um, better training programs for our executives. And through doing that, we built a, a company that was very, uh, very good at executing and could really out-execute out anybody in the industry. Um, yeah. So that's, that's what happened. Yeah. And that's what we tried to do and it worked. Nice. And I imagine there's sort of this balance of, obviously, you know, at least from my late perspective with, with Dell, there seemed to always be a, a dynamic vision in place, but it sounds like you also made sure that you're building a strong foundation from the ground up with good, good systems and, and organization to, to succeed when, when that vision, so that vision could be reached. Absolutely. I mean, as a, in consult, as a consultant, I learned that strategy is wonderful, but execution of the strategy is the deal. Mm. That's where the money's made. And so if you, like you said, if you were not really good at executing on a superior strategy, nobody could beat you. But having a superior strategy you can't do anything with is a waste of time. It's a, yeah. You lost all the, all the oomph in the strategy because you couldn't do anything with it. You didn't, your people didn't know how to execute. Yeah. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, did you feel this is sort of random question? But did you feel at any point like you're you were be better suited at moments because you had that civil engineer degree? <laughs> well, well, I tried to I tried to use it so I could brag about myself with all these other guys who had uh, had you know had PhDs in engineering that were in there. So with those kind of guys hanging around, you had to you had to try to look pretty good or you would get uh, stomped on. But no, I uh, I. Uh, I never tried to my civil engineer other than just the analytics, because yeah. in our in, in our consulting business the analytics were critical, and if you couldn't calculate and analyze and crunch numbers and do all of that, you would probably be no good in business. So yeah, yeah. And then what was the story behind just the you mentioned the transition out of that CEO role or in that 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 trio of of people, yep. and then how did that your career wind wind down there? Well, we'd we'd been. Uh, we, it, we went through a couple of real tough times uh, during the during the um, early 2000s. There were a couple of situations, actually in the late 1990s, and then in the 2000s, a couple of industries where the technology industry we went through downturns uh, or went through a lot of difficulties, whether it's government regulation or downturns or what have you. And so, in those cases, we had to reassess um, and reconfigure what we were doing. Uh, to kind of save the company and keep the company growing and, and alive and doing well. And that was really hard. Hmm. That was really hard. And so the last one we made, um, Michael and I got together and talked about what we needed to do at that point and didn't, couldn't quite come to the same understanding of what we should be doing. And so in that case, his name was on the door and mine wasn't. And so, uh, and so I left uh, at that point in time. Um, still uh, have nothing but good things to say about Adele. But it just really wasn't the time that I was going to be there. And I think Michael wanted to take over the reins again. He thought he did. And so um, I was out. I was out, the odd man out. Uh, I didn't go, I didn't have another job. I wasn't leaving to go to, you know, company B. But it just was kind of the end of the run. Ten years is about the time a CEO can actually do something. And, yeah. and if you do hang on more than that, you basically, uh, you basically impede change. And so it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a bad thing that I left. And, and uh, yeah, 
I, and I did other things with my life, but I didn't, I didn't go run another company. So nice. So, and then, uh, let's see, was that, uh, mid two thousands that you left? 2007. Okay. Great. And so, uh, leaving Dell, I mean, did you have any ambitions uh, on the horizon at that point or what did you think was next? Oh, I did. I had a lot of people call and want me to do various things, but, um, I just had a, a 10 year run the, probably the, the, the best run that any company has had yeah. uh, in technology ever. So it was going to be pretty hard to beat that. Uh, and so I was not looking to beat that. I wasn't, let me find the next Dell and I'll do it on that. Uh, I had made more money than I ever thought I could make. I had had more success than I ever thought I could have. Um, and so I just took a little time and backed off and w- w- joined a number of boards, philanthropy boards, as well as, um, as uh, business companies, and um, tried to just see what I really, really wanted to do. And I dabbled a little bit in other um, uh, leadership jobs. Uh, and I just never found anything that I really thought was going to ever uh, rival the success I just had with Dell. And so I just remained an advisor uh, to several private uh, private equity companies uh, to some, I was on the board at BYU, their uh, President's Leadership Council and the NAC there on boards at other institutions. And that ended up after about three years of wondering what I would do, ended up being the right path. And I just stayed on it. Yeah. I, I stayed essentially semi-retired. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm just curious if you have any perspective on just the personal computer industry today, and obviously it's shifted dramatically with the use of smartphones and things. Do you keep, you need, do you watch that closely at all or keep tabs on that? Or what, what's your perspective on that? Well, you know, I did for a while um, and tracked it closely because of my interest and experience, but the industry is so intense and the change cycles are so fast that unless you're right in the heart of it, finding out, seeing what's going on with all the pieces, which we were at Dell because we had suppliers and customers and, and R&D departments. We could just see all of these things moving at once and then make decisions on that. Unless you're there, it's really hard. Hmm. It's really hard for, to, to be on the outside as well. Let me tell you what to do and here's what you can do. Um, <laughs> it, yeah, so I had to really be inside and I was not. I was not an insider anymore. Right? So I, I couldn't do that as well as I did before. Uh, and so, you know, that just didn't ever work. When I was working with private equity firms, they wanted to buy companies, fix them up and sell them is what they would essentially do. But they didn't care about making great companies. And so I'd go there and they'd say, well, here's a financial numbers. Here's what we're going to do. And then we'll sell it at the end of the year. But, and I said, yeah, but there's no, we didn't fix the fabric of the company. It's not a better company mm. now. And they go, yeah, well, that's not the job we're in. <laughs> And so I just didn't like that. I didn't find that satisfying at all. Uh, and so I worked with a bunch of companies, great companies, and they treated me wonderfully. But at the end of the day, I just said, this is not for me. I, and so I, I stepped out of those deals. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, I mean, you still have decades and decades of your life. Uh, is any any yeah. future plans uh, or do you just enjoy what you're doing with these, these uh, assignments and callings and whatnot? I'm enjoying what I'm doing with, uh, in fact, I, 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 you know, just as soon as I left and joined, I became a stake president. So that gave me a, a whole new path of mm-hmm. life that I could spend as much time in as I wanted. And my wife and I have stayed involved in church callings, big church call- callings. Uh, and um, that has been enough. Yeah. That has been enough. I haven't thought, you know, I really need to get in the game again. And I really need to, um, I don't know today when I see what's happened and how, uh, 
CEOs are pilloried and, um, and, you know, and ridiculed. Um, I just don't know if I want to go through that. <laughs> yeah. And put up with that baloney because I say, well, you'll make some money. I already made all the money I need. I don't yeah, need yeah. more money. So it's going to be <laughs> something else that I got to be excited about and to go. And I just, I just haven't found it. Haven't yeah. found it. So I do, do things with my family and do things with our, our own estate and uh, work in the church, do all sorts of odds and ends. And that's, that's enough. That's awesome. Enough. Awesome. Well, Kevin, this has been uh, really fun and insightful for me to, to explore your, your experience and learn some of these principles and whatnot. Um, I'm just curious, the last question I have is, imagine your room full of MBA students um, or young professionals. What final advice would you give to that group of people? Well, I, I t- speak to that group of people a lot. I mean, I speak every year at Harvard, their, at their uh, business school. Uh, I speak at BYU. I haven't in a while, but I used to speak at BYU a lot and other places, of young gatherings of young single adults. And, and the, the most important I, I thing I try to tell them is uh, this is your life. You've got to enjoy your life. And so if you're not having joy in what you're doing and feeling a sense of accomplishment and of peace, then you're doing it wrong. And you got to find out another way to do it. If you're having sadness and heartache and anxiety and it's just no fun, then you're doing it wrong and your life is probably out of balance. And so I talk to a lot about how do you find out how to get your life in balance? What are the signs that tell you you're out of balance and it's your unhappiness? That's the sign. And your wife or your friends can tell you what you're doing wrong and, and, and then reorient your life. And remember, you're in this thing for a very short period of time. Uh, and and you, you've got to be able to enjoy what you're doing here, not just get through it. Uh, and so I try to help people understand the balance they should seek. And if they get the right balance, they'll find that they're happy. Now, they're working hard. That doesn't mean they're going to goof off. But they'll, they'll find that life is a joy. They're solving problems. They're taking care of church assignments. They're helping their families. Um, but they got to get that balance. Uh, and uh, they'll know. Or if they don't know, their wives will know or their families will know. And they'll be able to say, you're an ornery guy or you're an unhappy man. What's wrong with you? And try to help you solve that problem so you get that life back into balance where it's a joy. Thank you for listening to the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Check out the show notes for more information about our guest and visit latterdaysaintmba.com to find details about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society.